That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Conspiranormal. All right, everybody, welcome to Conspiranormal. We are gearing up for the next Strange Reality stream presentation with our guest we have tonight. Yeah, on May 20th, Mr. Walter Bosley will be giving the next Strange Reality streaming presentation. That's going to be at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, so set your uh, time zone calendars accordingly. But uh, tonight, I guess, Walter, we'll get into a little bit of what we were just talking about what you're going to present. So we'll talk a little bit about that, too, towards the end of the interview. But uh, tonight we're going to talk about his new book, which this is the latest book, right? The Secret Missions 5. Uh, yeah, sure. uh, let me let me let me think. Yes, it is. Okay, okay. <laughs> I do believe it is. Yeah, all right, I, all right. I do write that series with a, a young gentleman named Todd Wood, who uh, also lives in Tennessee. And, oh, really? um, uh, but, uh, yeah, of mine, that's just a Walter book. Yes. Secret missions five is the most recent one. And it's called veil destinies crossroads of the axis of circumstance. And I kind of felt like this book was a little bit like you're trying to tie some things together from the previous four books. Definitely. And I guess we should say, well, the first book was the Juan Cabrillo book. Mm-hmm. The second one was Richard Burton. Third one was Ambrose Bierce. And then the fourth one is Esoteric Napoleon, part one. So this is the fifth one. So with this book, um, what were kind of like your reasons for writing in this kind of attempt to kind of like tie some of these strands from the previous four books together? Well, just uh, that was a big part of it right there just uh, on the surface thinking you know i've i've put out these four books on these four different historical figures spanning centuries you know and i thought you know it's time to provide perhaps some more historical context um and some more data that i had collected but wasn't enough necessarily to be its own book, but was still very significant within the bigger picture. And, you know, so I thought, okay, book five is a good, that's a, that's the good number. You know, you read the four volumes 
And the fifth one is, okay, here's the companion to, if you've read the whole series, what you've just read, or if you haven't, um, you know, here, here's, here's the context for all of these books. And I think it's very helpful. You could actually, you could actually start with secret missions five and then go back and read those first four. Uh, it, it also um, better displays or demonstrates the um, chronological order of, of this. And um, I'm fascinated with my suspicion. It's not just my suspicion. A lot of people, you know, are kind of play ball in this same field uh, that there has been this thread of knowledge, right? That's not common knowledge that is often kept very close to vest. And I definitely see the four men that I've written about so far as uh, having either been uh, recipients as recruits into some, you know, secret order or group uh, or have stumbled upon, you know, whatever this ongoing thread of knowledge through the ages is. And so doing number five, aside from the very practical reasons of giving the readers of the previous books in the series some context, uh, doing number five kind of demonstrates even more, emphasizes even more uh, that this appears to be something that is, you know, moving through the ages, moving through the centuries and um, how perhaps these four guys that I've written about so far really do um, have connections or tie together primarily through this uh, suspected secret knowledge of a uh, really the way I started putting it was uh, the uh, forgotten technology of a lost civilization or lost technology of a forgotten civilization. Either one works. Uh, it's that, it's that basic idea that there is a, a nugget of truth to the, these ideas of a, of, of an Atlantean type civilization. Right. So, um, it, uh, it, it really, other than that, it really comes down to providing the readers of the first four books with, um, the historical context of, of where you've been, if you've read the four books already, and then hopefully where the series will go from here. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of interesting connections and things that you talk about, and uh, I'm hoping to get to some of them. There's, there's a lot in this book, um, but I'm hoping to get to some of these, like these ideas and, one of the things that you talk about is this, um, the idea of the sword and you talk about the sword, the sword of Joan of Arc. And some of that is, uh, related, I guess, to Excalibur. And I think that's from the first book. Um, so the Templars play a big role in this story. Uh, can you go over that just like real quick, but how the Templars, enter into this sure within the uh hypothesis that you know that i'm writing about within the context of of that first book uh, i'm very much uh, a proponent of that long time hypothesis that the templars indeed had uh, come to the americas both continents 
prior, of course, obviously prior to Columbus. I'm very much, you know, a proponent of that idea. I think there's definitely evidence of that. I'm, I'm convinced there personally, and therefore I'm a proponent of Columbus having had, uh, uh, um, oh gosh, what's the word post, um, persecution, post persecution, Templar ties when the Templars went underground, you know, it, there, there's, there are reasons to suspect, of course, and, and many other researchers and scholars have pointed this out in detail. Um, I'm a proponent of that idea, you know, and, and not just Columbus, um, other explorers, some of whom I talk about in, in this very book. So I'm coming from that milieu. I'm, I'm a proponent of that, a fan of those ideas. And it's my suspicion as the first book goes into that you have to start with this idea of a, the lost technology of a forgotten civilization. Okay. At one point, human civilization had advanced to a level and then for whatever reason, be it natural cataclysm mixed with, you know, political wrongdoings and war and stuff like that, there was a fall. Okay. And so human civilization after that has been trying to reattain that level and go beyond it, of course. Now, sometimes people get tripped up with the word technology. These days you say technology and they think, you know, they think wires and, and, and uh, digital and, and, you know, the kind of stuff we deal with when actually uh, blacksmithing is a technology, right? Um, and so when we talk about advanced blacksmithing ideas, uh, uh, methods and such, what we'd be talking about is are, are things that certainly in the medieval era they could do. But if they had the knowledge that that uh, forgotten civilization had, they would know little extra things to do that in the blacksmithing of weapons or armor would take it way beyond the level at which they're functioning at in the medieval era case in point, the Joan of Arc sword. Now, why do I think the Joan of Arc sword might be this? You got to look at the lore, which is what I do in the first book, the lore and the history. We know Joan of Arc historical figure. Um, and then we have the lore, uh, Charlemagne or, uh, Charles Martel. I'm sorry, Charles Martel, uh, long before uh, Joan of Arc. He's a historical figure. We know that uh, he went up against an invading. Um, uh, oh, boy, where were they from? Sorry, doing a brain dump. The, the, the Eastern invaders, from the Persian invaders, Muslim invaders. Yeah, yeah, I guess mostly Moors. Yeah, at that point. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, right. the Moors, the Muslim invaders. And, and they were about to just really overtake Europe, as we know. And uh, Charles Martel is one of those, he's French, of course, uh, who's known in history for repelling them. Well, what's really fun about the Charles Martel issue when he goes up against them and defeats a, a much larger army is it's almost a comedy of errors. When you read, when you read both sides' accounts, the European account and even the Eastern account, the Muslim account, you realize it, it really was a comedy of errors in a way that the French were able to repel them. Um, but 
repelled them, they did. Now, what's interesting is there's this little story in there. Uh, Martel was known to have carried a particular sword. And the story is uh, that a meteorite fell nearby the night before the battle. This is the legend. And Martel grabs a couple of men and his blacksmith, his sword maker, you know, specifically his weaponsmith. And they go out there, they retrieve that meteorite and his uh, personal weaponsmith forges a sword for him from the meteorite, which is played up as a gift from God. You know, this night before Europe is going to be destroyed. If it's not for Charles Martel, the hammer. And he, of course, goes on to uh, victory the next day. It's a, a surprise and upset and such. And then afterwards, he takes the sword, according to the story, and he buries it behind the altar of the Church of St. Catherine at, i not pronouncing it right, Firebois. Okay, Firebois or Firebois. Now, that St. Catherine, and here's where it Here's where it further more deeply intrigued me. That St. Catherine is indeed St. Catherine of Alexandria or St. Catherine of the Wheel, who, as you know, if you've read Empire of the Wheel 1 and heard me talk about this ad nauseum, uh, is proven to be Hecate. Right. Now, here's the thing. Um, skip ahead some centuries, and you have Joan of Arc who's hearing voices and she's, she's, you know, claiming, believing to be uh, communicating with three saints, the primary one being our friend, St. Catherine of Alexandria or the goddess Hecate. And uh, Hecate is appearing as St. Catherine to Joan and instructs Joan to go to the church dedicated to herself, St. Catherine, and tells her about the uh, sword behind the altar. And the story is, is that Joan digs up the sword um, and, you know, cleans it up real good. And this is the sword that she subsequently begins carrying into battle. And, of course, she and whoever follows her are never defeated, you know, in the battles that she has that sword. Now, in the battle in which she was captured, finally... She's not carrying that sword. It's kind of it's kind of like a parallel to like the Ark of the Covenant in a way, like you know. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So, so and during her trial, and I go into more detail in the book, but during her trial, here's the fascinating thing: the transcripts of Joan of Arc's trial, as people might not know, um, this is all documented. You can read this stuff. You can find it in history books. It's fascinating. And you see pretty quickly, they were obsessed. Now, remember, the British were behind uh, the, the uh, church tribunal of Joan of Arc. The British were pushing for that, the English. And it, it, they were obsessed with where that sword was. And so there, that's where I began to wonder, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have Charles Martel, a meteorite falls from the sky from which he fashions a sword, right? And then we have Joan of Arc, who's told by this female entity to go dig up the sword. And if she carries it, she'll be undefeated in battle, which as long as she's carrying it, she is. And then, you know, she's captured and no one knows what happened to the sword. And the English are obsessed with it. Well, I'm I'm putting 
two and two together here. Hmm. A sword drawn from a meteorite. What is a meteorite but a stone? A sword from a stone, uh, a, mm. a, a, a female entity, spirit being, goddess, if you will, uh, leading warrior leaders to use the sword and be invincible in battle. Uh, and then the sword disappears. Golly. And, and the English are obsessed with it. Well, why wouldn't they be? It's got all the the uh, factors of the legend of King Arthur and Excalibur right mm -hmm. there, you know? And so I'm thinking, well, what if, what if there, what if the nugget of truth to the whole story of Excalibur um, is what we see demonstrated in the Charles Martel story. And there's this gentleman out there, Lance Bernard is his name, if I'm getting that right. And he laid all this out in his research on Martel's sword and Joan of Arc's sword. And I reference him in that book. And, uh, you know, from there, I realized, wait a minute, the sword itself could have been um, an example of this uh, lost technology of a forgotten civilization. Whoever and whatever Hecate is or whatever role, you know, this figure played, um, uh, the rest of the story looks completely like an advanced understanding of, of um, working iron and, and, and working uh, weaponsmithing. And of course, I, I do further analysis and point out that, uh, the, the, you know, there's a part in the book where the, the 12 seats of the round table could actually represent the 12 um, mineral elements that go into making the sword. Okay. And um, what, what could have been going on here was amid all the lore uh, is that actually somebody with knowledge of this lost technology of a forgotten civilization, you know, knew the secret of fashioning this very special weapon. Okay. That had uh, very interesting properties. Now, when you look, when you look at the Arthurian legend, who among, you know, our Arthur's court might've known about this uh, lost technology of a forgotten civilization, whoever the, you know, became the guy we call Merlin. Right. We do have this character Merlin who had all this knowledge. Well, what is Merlin, you know, on a realistic level, but a hermeticist, an alchemist. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, it suggests that the English response to Joan was that they suspected somebody in the know in England suspected uh, what her sword actually was. And it's not that there was, that it was the Excalibur, right? It was that it was an Excalibur, that Excalibur, so to speak, represents a certain type of weaponsmithing. Okay. That, that was this, this advanced weaponsmithing that uh, dates back to the forgotten, you know, murky past of human history. And certain people, you know, kind of knew this knowledge close to vest or secretly. And, you know, they would once in a while emerge and, and someone they wanted to help, whatever cause they wanted to help, they would, they, they would do that.
And uh, this is my perspective on, you know, what the Joan of Arc sword and the Charles Martel sword may have been. Now, where do the Templars come in? Ah, what I think about that is that uh, I found evidence that Joan's brothers, who were soldiers, they were knights in her army, uh, one or both of them could have been Templars. Okay. And this, of course, was post the persecution and the disbanding of the uh, order. Right. Because that's 1307. Right. This is probably 1420s, 1430s. Yeah. Joan is a century later. So I suspect that her one or both of her brothers were Templar associated. And by this time, remember, right, this is this is the 15th century, but several years before Columbus and and the official, oh, gee, look what we found when they knew it was there all along, the Americas, I'm meaning the New World. Um, uh, uh, This, of course, was after all the um, Sinclair and and other supposed very likely uh, Templar journeys to the Americas secretly. This was after the Templars would have, hypothetically, of course, been established without post or a presence in the Americas. So what do I think? Just like I say in the book, I think the sword of Joan of Arc, the, the mysterious one, the, the, the one that the English wanted, uh, I think that ended up before she was captured. It was handed over to one of her brothers or another Templar representative and brought to the Americas and vaulted away here. Right, and you speculate too that Juan Cabrillo later tries to find this, and that well, that that he supposedly dies, but he but you speculate that he probably didn't, and then it ends up possibly somewhere in the Pacific in a vault or something. Yes, yeah, and that's where I go with this book because um, in that going back to that the first Secret Missions book after the sword is here, I have a a hypothetical. It's a suspicion. It's hypothetical. And I present the possibility that what the uh, Templars did was move their vault. Um, they, they started moving the vault uh, through and across the continent as people arrived and as the population grew. Right. And in the book, as you know, the first book, I point out all the possible places where a Templar vault could have been and why I think that ultimately I think that the Templar vault, again, I emphasize the word think, this is hypothetical, but I have my reasons for suspecting that that Templar vault, uh, after being in South Mountain in Phoenix, very possibly, it ended up in in, uh, Mount Rubidoux, which is right here in downtown um, Inland Empire, downtown Riverside, California, okay? And uh, Mount Rubidoux was just one of those mountains that's a few feet shy of actually being a mountain, but it's it's essentially a mountain because um, there are there have been rumors for over a century that there was some type of sacred tomb inside of Mount Rubidoux. So that's why I suspect that. And then there's evidence that it went from there to north of San Diego and uh, I think at the time that Cabrillo was doing his exploration of California, specifically what they call Alta California, which is north of Baja, um, the sword was very possibly still inside Mount Rubidoux. Um, it, it could have already been 
in the place I think it was in north of San Diego, which is private property. So I don't like to identify that. Um, but the details about Cabrillo's supposed death on that expedition, because he never returned home from that expedition, you get three different stories from the people who were on the expedition, from the witnesses themselves. You get three different stories about where his wounds were. Okay. And what's interesting is his wounds that are reported correspond to Masonic um, rituals, the first three degrees. It, it's really, really intriguing. And then to this day, nobody knows where the man was buried. Okay. It, it's, it's a mystery where he was, where he was buried. His bones, his remains have never been found. Uh, I, of course, in the book, in the first book, I go into the details um, that, that further convinced me of the possibility that he faked his death and dedicated himself to a life um, with the undercover Templar order. Now, how the sword, as I talk about in this book, Secret Missions 5, likely ended up in the Pacific is basically the result of what I just explained. As the population grew in the Americas, you know, um, the Templars kept moving the vault, whatever, you know, this one particular vault, that, whatever vault it was that held these most important relics, I think the sword among them. And I think it just kept moving west. I think at one point it might have been on um, either Catalina Island itself or one of those Channel Islands, California Channel Islands. But I think it's, you know, kind of moved across the Pacific. And it, I, I was suspecting that it could have been in the Midway Islands uh, by the World War II era. Um, and that's why I, you know, with the fifth book, I was able to get into that and flesh it out a little bit and found, I think you'll agree, some really interesting, intriguing facts and in history about um, those islands, that, that area. Now, I think it's possible. I honestly couldn't say where I think the sword is now. I think when Cabrillo, this is hypothetical, but I think that when Cabrillo's service ended in uh, being the custodian of the sword. And I could be wrong about him being the custodian of the sword. He could have just been, um, uh, you know, faked his death, became knighted as a Templar. And his job was to just go retrieve the sword from Mount Rubidoux here in Riverside and take it to the next location. And then he was done off. He went to, you know, whatever, but whatever that case was within my hypothesis, what I do think, is that he continued across the Pacific and ended up in Japan. I think that ultimately there's a good chance that we would find Juan Cabrillo's remains in Japan. Because one of the little interesting tidbits is that uh, the year, I believe it was the year he you know, allegedly dies and disappears. Um, uh, the, uh, remember, he was a Portuguese in the service of Spain. All right. You speculate that he might have been Cabral's son. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, oh, I think yeah. he was. Well, Cabrillo is a diminutive. Um, right? It That's can be. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The ILLO, especially. Um, and, and I go into the book why I think he was Pedro Cabral's son, which is some of the most fascinating research in the book, I think. Uh, but he, here's the thing. Um, the year that he disappears from history is the year that the Portuguese suddenly um, up and make a trade deal with Japan. 
Yeah. Yeah, they were the first European power to be have any influence in Japan. Yeah, and yeah. I think that Juan Cabrillo had something to do with that undercover. Um, I found uh, a a uh, and I'm still researching this. I'm, I'm kind of waiting for an answer. I put some stuff out. I didn't get them back, but I had to come out with the book. But um, there's a particular um, uh, order over there samurai order because you know they exist they have their modern you know um organizational uh, existence and i contacted their historian because uh this particular order the uh, of the minamoto clan uh they were involved with a shrine to um non-japanese foreign samurai um soldiers uh kind of a and and it kind of like what we would do with an unknown soldier thing, they had a shrine to a non-Japanese samurais who who had been knighted as samurais, and and uh, this goes back centuries. And I suspect that Juan Cabrillo was among those. That's yeah, that's really interesting, Walter. That's huh. Um. And I'd like to say real quick, yeah. if, if for those who haven't read the books or heard me talk about them, yes, these books, um, you, you don't necessarily have to be a fan of the other weird stuff that we and I like to talk about or write about. These books are chock full of historical research that I did as mm-hmm. well. Right. And, and to me, that's what, I mean, that's what kind of turns me on about the whole series is, you know, I have found something weird, strange off w- deep within this historical context. So, uh, but number five does get into more weird stuff than the previous four books do. Yeah. And one of those things that I wanted to ask you about, uh, the Rin La Chateau mystery. I mean, this, the, <laughs> This is one, of course, from like Holy Blood, Holy Grail, you know, that famous book. And uh, you get into Nicholas Poussin, the painter, and the, about Acadia and, and all this. And you say that there's there's probably more. There's a lot to that as well. That points to North America. Yeah. And remember, I said number five is kind of like, uh, here's a good word for number five. It's the fulcrum. Okay, it gives you a context and a chronology of everything that's come before in the series, but then it gives you stuff of what's going to come. And the thing about Acadia and Nicholas Poisson and Ren Le Chateau and all that stuff we're talking about there, that is, I'm still in the early stages of figuring out what the heck that is about because that has popped up in other parts of my research, other things that I've done. And um, it, it's, it's real interesting, real interesting stuff that I've only begun to um, scratch the surface on, but definitely uh, plays a part in the secret missions milieu that I've been looking at. So how does that, how does that fit in? I'm in that again, I put it this way because I don't like to mislead people, make them think that, these ideas that I'm thinking necessarily always uh, some things originate with me by golly. Like uh, I haven't heard anyone else talk about Cabrillo being Cabral's son. I'm kind of proud of that one, but you know what I mean? Uh, I, I come from the school of thought that, um, that Ren Le Chateau and specifically, specifically Nicholas Poisson's, famous painting the three for those who don't know it's the famous painting of the it's called the three shepherds mm-hmm. and it's where the phrase et in arcadia ego um 
you know, comes from, which, uh, which was, is central to the whole uh, father Sonia mystery and, and such. I come from that school of thought, which suspects that Poisson was painting landscapes that are in the Americas. And um, that it's even possible that Da Vinci had done that too. I, I think it's possible that the landscape and the Mona Lisa could represent someplace um, in the Americas. And um, so when you get into the uh, uh, Acadia thing, uh, this is where the concept of this mysterious Acadia or Arcadia, as it was also um, previously spelled. This has connections not only heavily in Nicholas Poisson's paintings, but um, also in uh, the French explorers. Verrazzano. Yeah, Verrazzano, yeah. Yes, Verrazzano, who was the Italian working in the service of France. Okay? And uh, he named the area, uh, a big chunk of what is uh, Canada, including Quebec, and much of New England. In fact, New England, I believe, all the way down almost to where Washington, D.C. would be, which you know encompasses New York and all that. Um, originally, all this was considered this Arcadia. And he, of course, was inspired by um, a, a, an epic, I think it's verse, you know, um, and here we have Poisson, including it in, you know, et in Arcadia ego. I am also in Arcadia. Now, uh, on the one hand, it could be interpreted as just that, that uh, imagine that, that um, perfect heaven paradise that we go to after we, we physically die. But at the same time, they could have been embedding information about the Americas in Poisson doing it in his paintings. Um, uh, or perhaps that Verrazzano had a knowledge of the forgotten civilization uh, in the Americas and its mm -hmm. connection to the Americas because Verrazzano himself. Uh, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, he disappeared. You have these guys that appear like Cabrillo, who, you know, just appears on the historical stage to this day. No one knows officially where he was born. As you know, I say Brazil. And um, and then, you know, when they die, they actually disappear. When you look closer at their death. Well, who are these guys? What the heck? It's very easy to suspect that you're dealing with Templar knowledge of not just the very practical knowledge of, hey, they came to the new world, you know, because of the ancient maps and portalons that um, going back to the Piri Rios map type stuff, uh, you know, between that and between other more esoteric information, uh, you know, you have these guys by the age of discovery, this era of exploration, who very likely Templar affiliated um, are looking for specific things. Um, which to this day, I think people are, uh, are still looking for. And you even have uh, later, you have um, a descendant of Poisson who's in Napoleon's army, 
and who ends up in the U.S. Army as an engineer. And uh, it's even possible that he had some knowledge and was looking for something. I'm doing the air quotes with that, you know, looking for something that we, we still don't know what he was looking for, which may very well had to do with whatever these, these uh, secrets of Arcadia all right. And then, of course, in the middle of this, you have the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who uh, is buried um, in a tomb very similar to the tomb in Poisson's painting. And really, as I as I lay out in the book um, with Todd Wood. Uh, the it's the Ingersoll Lockwood book. I think it, I, I don't think it's the Margaret Todd book. It's the Lockwood book. Longfellow had his family had this group of crypts in this old cemetery. And those were discovered to be empty when they shouldn't have been. So nobody knows for sure about the remains of a few members of Longfellow's family or, or even if his or where they're supposed to be. And part of this, is this now gets into the territory that I'm still doing research on and still trying to figure out um, Longfellow, as it turns out, um, he, he, he seemed to be uh, embedding certain esoteric secrets and information in some of his works and apparently in his tomb. Uh, his tomb has, uh, it's called a horned tomb. And at the corner of each are these horns, which, um, you know, some scholars far beyond myself have indicated to me that that, that has some type of esoteric meaning. And it's all very possible in my mind that what, Father Sonier actually found um, might not have had so much to do with, you know, the alleged marriage between Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene as something to do perhaps with the Merovingian dynasty, uh, which might have more to do possibly with Joan of Arc, but even more possibly with Napoleon Bonaparte. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I think that it, it had much more to do with the Merovingian stuff. That The whole Jesus bloodline stuff, that came from the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Yeah, yeah, that was that, they're kind of Johnny-come-latelys. And that didn't really come from the so-called Priory of Sion. In fact, whenever... <laughs> it, it, it has become canon, but it really isn't yeah, from the right. canon of the mystery. Whenever the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail talked to the Priory of Sion, which was a modern day thing. Um, it, this big hoax, but then you ask yourself, well, why go through this elaborate hoax? That's the other question. Um, they were surprised that they'd even brought up the whole Jesus bloodline thing. Yeah, because people would say, well, then Walter and, and you guys, you know, um, why, why would it be such a secret? Well, uh, you know, think about this. What if Sonier had discovered that this guy, okay, who had been vilified and demonized from the start because the persnickety little British 
of the British Empire who were all scared and jealous because a Frenchman was beating them at their own domination game. Um, you guys know what I think and feel about the whole Napoleon thing. I'm an admirer. Um, imagine if what Saunier discovered was that Napoleon Bonaparte really was the heir to the throne and not only the heir to the throne, what if he discovered the documents that prove that Napoleon Bonaparte would have been uh, the legitimate heir going back and predating, get this, all the existing dynasties that were running the countries that had allied against Napoleon. In other words, what if Saunier had proven that Napoleon's claim was legit and that would be something that, uh, you know, and the church hated him because of um, golly, how he treated a Pope. He had one Pope under house arrest. And, um, you know, so the church being complicit and all the crap they're complicit in, in politics and dynastic intrigues, um, of course, they might have been willing to give Sonier whatever he wanted, you know, to, to keep him happy and to keep his mouth shut. Because you're talking major political um uh, upset there. Remember, at the time of Saunier, Saunier, Father Saunier, and the discovery of all this, Napoleon, you know, from the larger historical perspective, Napoleon hadn't been gone a hundred years. No, it hadn't. Yeah, no. Yeah, right, right. Because Saunier was what that was like around 1890 or something. Yeah, and, okay. and in my opinion, what Napoleon did, which is the whole other fun discussion of the Napoleon book, you know, I, I think Napoleon lived to. Uh, 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 1844. That's but that's another story. Um, so think about it. Napoleon would have only been actually dead for you know half a century at the time Sonier discovered this. Um, so this would have been a big enough deal to these people to. Oops, sorry. My usual Tuesday alarm went off. Um, but uh, uh, see, the alarm went off to keep me talking about the Napoleon secret. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, I think it's certainly compelling, the whole Merovingian bloodline thing. Cause, uh, it's possible. To, I don't know for sure. You know, because that was the original uh, was the original lineage of, of France, and that was, you know, it predated the Carolingians. Um, that's really, I think, all you would need. And even though, even though we know Napoleon was born essentially an Italian, you know, on the Italian island, um, yeah, I demonstrated. Yeah, yeah. I demonstrate in the book how he definitely could have been the descendant of the Merovingians. Well, it would have come through his mother's line, right? On his mother's side, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. I, I demonstrate how that could have been, but you know, that's like I said, that's in that book. And again, I emphasize it's a hypothesis. I I could be wrong, but it just feels too uh, too resonant, you know to dismiss in my opinion we could go on for hours to think about why that the merovingian stuff is so important i I'd, I'd love to do a show just on i've done it kind of but i'd love to do a show just on like the holy blood holy grail stuff because that stuff is really like infinitely fascinating and i i, I ate that stuff up when i was a kid like, <laughs> yeah just, oh, yeah. oh yeah and when and when i mean you know like who sonier was hanging out with you know, um, uh, eventually, you know, all, all those 
uh, French occultists and Emma Calvay well, and that know, whole thing. There, there were three authors of the book, and one of them, you know, Henry Lincoln, he was more like the TV producer. He really kind of broke with the other two guys eventually, and he I haven't read it, but he wrote his own book about like that. Like, no, what's really going on is like, Ren Le Chateau in and of itself is like this ancient pagan temple. And that's really what was really being protected, and that's really what was being Sonnier found out and all this. So he was really more focused on the land itself. It wasn't, you know, that there were these... Dan Brown just ran ran off with the whole Jesus bloodline stuff. Yeah, 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 which is very entertaining and very intriguing. But um, and, and you know the whole thing about it being uh, potentially you know a, a pagan temple stuff is is very fascinating and would still fit with you know a a Merovingian connection in uh, you know essential ways. Uh, of course, there's the obvious. You know, if a pagan temple was it a temple to you know the goddess Hecate, who you know yeah. also Saint Catherine of Alexandria, and then you know that that there you go. There's another connection to all of that, and uh, this brings to mind um, something that immediately jumped out at me during my Empire of the Wheel investigation years, and has popped up in other people's minds. Um, uh, who, you know, familiar with my research is that what I have found in Riverside, California, associated with Mount Rubido, which I go into in the Juan Cabrillo book and I think a couple others, um, is very reflective of a Renle Chateau type of layout situation. There is a, uh, there is a tower um, an interesting stone tower uh, and, and there's the, you know, the discussion of a sacred tomb. It's almost as if somebody in the early 19th century was privy to the Renle Chateau mystery. And they, they either came to or found themselves in Southern California in Riverside or was aware of the Templar connection and purposely this this kind of reflection of Ren Le Chateau um, you know helped help make that happen over here in Riverside and I have not fleshed that out as such yet I've hinted at it and talked about it with some people but th there's something there in all of that um, I suspect that somebody here was in the know and, and that would possibly hypothetically serve to maybe corroborate the Templar vault connection that I talk about in the first book. So it's just like all my other stuff, honestly, sincerely, one book has led to the other because of the darn threads that connect all this stuff. What I really like about your stuff also is how these threads connect to your, your sense of place and your connections to Southern California. And do, do you feel like that connection gives you insights or being in this, these places themselves, like leads you to these threads? It, it, it certainly doesn't hurt to, you know, have grown up and spent the majority of my life in this area, mm -hmm. in the Inland Empire. So I'm intimately familiar with the terrain here and um, a lifetime of, I mean, I've 
known about and been around Mount Rubido all my life. It's a familiar landmark to me. I didn't start learning really this stuff about Mount Rubido um, until, um, uh, again, talk about my book, Shimmering Light. My dad had told me part of the weird stuff my dad had told me was the story of the alleged sacred tomb in Mount Rubido that he, he used to work for the union oil company, which is known as Unical, of course, the 76, he worked for them years ago. And, um, he learned that in the history of the company, when they were sending out the oil men, their, their guys looking for new oil fields and looking for sources and properties to uh, buy and such that they had learned, uh, in the early 20th century that the locals had long believed there was a sacred tomb inside Mount Rubido. And I, I go into this in the book, if you recall, in the first book, that we have four native cultures here, native tribes here, and uh, their lands over in Riverside all come together, but at the base of Mount Rubido, and not one of them would claim Mount Rubido. It was too sacred, they said. And uh, my dad had learned that the Union oil men had learned about this local lore and these beliefs um, about something mysterious inside Mount Rubido. They'd learned that in the early 20th century. And uh, this era in which this stuff builds up and, and uh, uh, appears to mirror a kind of Ren Le Chateau feeling in Riverside, that all started happening after the oil men um, had learned about the sacred tomb and, and uh, after that quarry that I write about an empire, of the wheel that I had the weird experience with. Um, so this lore is connected, I think with why these people started developing Riverside in this way um, that reflects the Ren Le Chateau mystery. And um, yeah, yeah, being here, uh, and being very familiar with the terrain uh, helps me look at it, you know, look at what I'm surrounded with, like the big arrowhead on the mountain. I've seen that all my life. Everybody has, you know, who's mm -hmm. been here. But uh, it 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 does when you're when you're intimately familiar. You also know, uh, you know, the little roads, the back roads. You know a little bit more about the local history and and such that. Um, uh, that enhances your understanding, right? That, that, that just gives you the uh, better insight. Mount Rubido was named after um, a, a Frenchman who was a, uh, he, he owned one of the ranchos. His name was Louis Robidoux. Okay. R-O-B-I-D-O-U-X. Um, and the school kids standard story that we're told here is that, oh, the, the town of Rubido was named after Louis Robido, and therefore Mount Rubido is named after Louis Robido. And you don't think, how come it's a U instead of an O until you look closely. And then you find out, as I pointed out in my book, that somebody in the early 20th century, that's how the Mount Rubido that we know was named Mount Rubido. And it was just an arbitrary choice by some unknown member of the uh, uh, U.S. Geological Survey Group. Okay, mm -hmm. And of course, as you know, in the first book, 
I break down the significance of that and how it very possibly connects directly, directly to Rennes-le-Chateau, specifically the region where Rennes-le-Chateau is. And I, I identify why. So the suspicion is, man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, this is Southern California. The Spanish settled this area, right? You don't think of it as uh, a place of French influence, but interestingly enough, you had this Frenchman, Louis Robodeau, um, French-American guy who was here. Um, you have, uh, in the Empire of the Will mystery, you have victim number two is Isidore Jasseau, you know, a French, a, a man of French origin who was a, a trapper and, and uh, well-known trapper and, and miner in the, in the area here. So you have to ask yourself, you know, and, and you had, here's what's interesting. Uh, think of the whole Joan of Arc sword thing and the Excalibur connection. I didn't know this until the Empire of the Will mystery started unfolding itself. And I started digging into the history. I didn't know there was a British expatriate community that it's been there in Riverside since the 1880s. And it was a British company that owned the mysterious quarry that I found. So you have, you have, I'm told on the one hand from one source that there's an alleged sacred tomb or vault or something inside Mount Rubidoux. I have my historical reasons for suspecting that the Templars might have had a vault there. You have the possibility that the Templars got Joan of Arc's sword and they brought it to the Americas and Joan of Arc's sword could have been Excalibur. And gee, in Riverside, you have British expatriate community and they're apparently involved in the, the, the landmarks connected to voodoo and, and all this esoterica and then the Frenchman. So uh, it, it, this goes in to serve, um, you know, why I present the hypothesis but um, if you're a researcher who just comes here for a short period of time to, you know, look into this stuff, look into the valley, you're not going to be as intimately familiar with, you know, all the um, the idiosyncrasies of it in the, in the little um, mm -hmm. corners of the history. And so, yeah, that that has actually served me well, um, I think the nuances, you know, of having been a lifelong resident here. That tower is interesting too. The Peace Tower, yes, yeah, yeah built in 1937, based on um, uh, the. Let me see if I get the name right. The Alcantara Bridge and Tower, or it, it's in Spain, and it, it's one of those that uh, you have the tower, and then you have the footbridge that goes over the road below, and um, it, it's a very classic, uh, uh, popular 
shape of bridge to make. It's got the, uh, the, the round underside and the pointed top. It's similar to the bridge in Mostar Bosnia, which um, you can check that one out. I've, I've been on that bridge too many times because I've worked there a couple of times in Mostar in the old medieval city is where that's at. And, and that's the uh, thing. That's where the designers drew the model for this. Now, the people who wanted to build the tower overtly, they wanted to honor the man who built the mission in hotel and resort, um, which was never a real Spanish mission. It was just fashioned in that way and um, fascinating place to visit in its own right. And they wanted to honor him because he was very much a political progressive and into world peace and all that stuff. And he would host all these, you know, world leaders and stuff. But um, I go into in the book, you know, hey, let's look at the architects because, you know, you can say, hey, we want to honor a guy and really not have any understanding why the architect would design specifically what they designed and why or, or the spot yeah. that they put it on. Right. It looks very old world. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. It's it's a cool little spot. I, I've used it in little movie projects and stuff. Yeah, it, it's 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 really nice. It's, Is there any strange uh, like symbolism or heraldry? It looks like around the ring of the tower, there's some. I can't get a good picture of it though. When I first looked at it and did the initial research during the Empire of the Will years, I I found that um, there there was nothing overtly, um, you know, significant. Yeah. Okay. But I'll tell you what I've learned, guys, is that um, something that you do your research, you don't find anything terribly significant then. And then right. later something pops up and you realize, oh, wow. So I'm I'm still open on that. Uh, you know, just like in Mission Inn, there's the rotunda, the spiral staircase that, that uh, in the middle at the bottom level is the Bavarian goose man. It's, it's a replica of a famous statue in Europe. And uh, when you get into that whole thing, um, you find out that it's, it's uh, uh, symbolic for some, some interesting concepts or, or hiding the identity of a person. The, the, um, the mission in which Frank Miller is the name of the guy who built it and who the, interesting peace tower is overtly dedicated to mm -hmm. um the mission is a fascinating place to go i, I like going just to walk around because it's 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 got some similarities to the winchester mansion all these staircases i mean it's just as a as a cinematically minded person it's yeah. i'm just dying to film something inside there and of course it, when you read the books um uh, in the first secret mission book, I found Hecate all over the thing. Uh, it's interesting. They have um, the uh, Anne Rice suite, which pretty sure I checked it. It is named in honor of the author of the Vampire Chronicles, um, who passed away in recent years. She has lived in Southern California for she lived for much of her life um, out here. But um, it, it's just uh, a very interesting place which um just lends further to the mysteries of uh, this area i wanted to ask whether you think that there really is a unbroken 
chain of people with a, a common purpose? Or is this more of an idea that these different groups are picking up on something and kind of like relighting a torch and uh, either rediscovering or rekindling some kind of common agenda that they carry forward from there? Do you think there is a an unbroken chain or is it more like, like that? I think it's both. And here's okay. how. When you're, look, when, you're, when you're speaking of organizations, mm-hmm. you know, orders, societies, whatever you want to call them. I think it's what you describe. It's, it's, it's broken, but they're picking up on things and they, in effect, pass the torch. But I think there are individuals who um, are part of an unbroken chain of knowledge. And whether these individuals choose to, or to the extent to which these individuals are involved with any of these said organizations you know, is up for grabs. Um, I, I couldn't say for sure, but um, I, I think there's both. I, 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 I think the unbroken thing, because uh, it's, it would be colossally difficult, right. To maintain an unbroken line in, in some ways. So the easiest way to do that is to keep it in small, very small numbers, but think about how potentially dangerous possessing that kind of knowledge would be to that individual. Right. Um, Because quite frankly, you have power mad human beings, you know, who see their vision as right for everyone else. And, um, or whether it's right for everyone else, it's right for them and what they want or groups, what have you. And uh, you know, they, they would think nothing of, killing for that kind of information. You know, mm-hmm. that isn't just something in, you know, novels and movies. Uh, there's a reason that kind of idea is in our fiction and our entertainment is because it's inspired by real life, you know? Um, yeah. So that would be incredibly dangerous information to have. So naturally it would be close to vest and maybe only hinted at to societies once it's deemed by that individual that they agree with the um, uh, philosophical pursuits um, or the character of that society. So then they're willing to nudge them forward. Now there is the possibility because we do have in history, these legends of, you know, these, the mysterious stranger that would show up on the shores and uh, teach a particular culture or civilization, you know, advanced agriculture and advanced weapons making and advanced this, that, or the other, and then they would go off. Now, this might be these, these individuals that I suggested could be the unbroken line. This might be, could be where those stories have come from, you know, that, that they might be consciously, you know, dropping little pebbles in uh, the waters of human civilization as time goes on to advance uh, human civilization uh, to whatever agenda, you know, they're serving. So, uh, but as far as for certain, I don't know. (laughs) I, 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 nobody knows unless you're part of that unbroken chain. And I think that's how it works. I think those outside the unbroken chain never know for sure. 
I'm real fascinated by this idea that legends can contain instructions, like you were hinting at, could possibly contain instructions for even creating a technology or things like that. And as it relates specifically to the, the West and the history of the American West, treasure lore. Do you think treasure lore has uh, similar um, either instructions or has a repository of uh, some of these threads that you're you're pulling on that could be found within some of these treasure legends. What I've gleaned from the treasure legends to the extent that I've jumped in on them, and I have had to do that a little bit of that, of course, with what we're talking about with Templar vault issues and stuff and mysteries of the Southwest. And I do in Secret Missions 5, of course, I talk about the a little bit of that. Um, to the extent that I know about it, uh, I definitely think that it's not so much that there is a treasure of riches, right? right? Material treasures, but that they might be pointing out uh, secrets of the geography, of course, um, secrets of the past. So it's more of a wealth of knowledge. Now, now in some instances, it could be that someone did stumble upon a cache of, you know, some forgotten little treasure, so to speak, a forgotten stash of gold of, you know, or forgotten whatever uh, kind of valuables or um, uh, uh, where a mother load of a particular uh, <laughs> valuable mineral might be, you know, gold of course is the first one we think of. Um, so, in that regard, yeah, yeah, I, I do think that these point to um, a more mundane but potentially valuable it, it, truth, you know, or secret, or or I'm losing the word, um, like kind of like a like an inner truth kind of thing. Well, there's that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's that too. But it, it could be the the very practical, you know. Um, just hey like take in secret missions five the book we're talking about where you get into the uh legends of um Calafia, queen of the amazons and i lay out in the oh, i point out in the book some of the evidence that um california what we call california today where i'm living here could indeed in long forgotten ancient times have been uh the the, the realm of a, of a now lost kingdom or civilization. Well, that's actually on my list of stuff to ask you is um, about this novel called Esplend Esplandian or Esplandian. Esplandian. You know, this is something, something I've never heard of and kind of like a precursor to that. Cause I think it fits in. You talk about the fourth crusade. That's the crusade that sacks Constantinople and the possibility that some of this knowledge are these maps, the Templars find these and they're maps to like actual new world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, they get their hands on them through uh, very, very likely. I like to say likely because I, I think it's, it's very uh, convincing the, what happened with the, the fourth crusade. Um, you know, others before me have, have demonstrated far better the things that happened with Western Europe and then how, you know, golly, here's this, you know, the Americas and on and so forth that show that, uh, okay, something was found during 
during that uh, fourth crusade. And um, I believe I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to get it right, but um, I think Montalvo is the name of the author of. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Um, And that was the fourth or fifth uh, actual story in the, in the series that he's writing. And um, in, in all of that, it talks about how, uh, this queen of the Amazons and her army end up being involved with the assault on in the fourth crusade, the, the assault on Constantinople, mm-hmm. uh, when, when all of this allegedly happened and it talks about her coming, you know, her and her army coming from a far land, uh, which, you know, your materialist historians say, Oh yeah, it was North Africa. Well, no, you don't know that for sure, you know, according to, you know, what, it, what is said. And then some of the things discussed uh, in the story, like the, the flying battle griffins and all that, as I point out in the book, um, there are things pointed out in that story, a Splendion, um, about Calafia, about her kingdom, about some of the animals, including the griffins, you know, the giant bird creatures um, that could be exaggerations or clues to Cal- uh, of what was in California, right? I point out that the condor, for example, you know, this back then, especially, wow, look at this giant bird from the prehistoric era, as, as we would call it. You know, that could have been what the so-called griffins uh, of this story were alluding to. And so it's interesting how Montavo comes out with this book, um, around the time that the, you know, the new world is opened. Okay. As Europe, you know, Spain's leading up to that whole, I, and I do think it was a charade that, that Columbus and all of them, you know, pulled off. It it was this big staged event. Oh, look, the Americas when they knew damn well, it was there. Um, Yeah. I think that's entirely possible that this could have been a place of refuge for. Yeah. Certain yeah, and, groups and certain people. Sure. Or, yeah. Or, or a place of wealth and, and, you know, dating back to the Phoenicians, as some people have pointed out. I still personally think Columbus didn't know what he found, but that's just my personal opinion. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, wow. That's that's quaint. <laughs> because I, I, I do think he 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 understood what he found. But more importantly, uh, you know, they decided that they had reached the point where to truly explore exploit these new continents they needed the manpower right and uh so therefore oh it's time to open up the new world so we can have people flood in there we'll get that manpower quote unquote discover it and and i mean you talk about the templars you talk about prince modok you talk about all these these different these different legends that are around and Uh i mean i think it's entirely entirely possible well, and the novel Esplandion, as I say, um, sure, it was a well-known novel. Sure, anybody could have read it then. But as I point out, I think it was a coded guidebook to certain explorers and others that um, that if they were privy to certain things or they were tipped off, they understood that what it was doing was it, 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 it had its uh, dual purpose, right? One was entertaining you know, most of the 
average you know person who would read it back then who could read would read it would go oh an entertaining fantasy novel but i think certain explorers understood what was embedded in that book and they were using it very much as a guide i suspect that uh, uh juan cabrillo was using it as a guide for his exploration of alta california the california we know of today um the expedition on which he disappeared uh, and i lay that out in the book um and 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 why i think that you know that i i compare what's in the esplandion book and uh what we're told about california and, and uh it's very intriguing and, so and that, again that's one of the things i'm still pulling threads on is that where uh california gets its name from that character in the book yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. that and um as i as i discuss in secret missions five you know it, there, there's always look it's like egyptian hieroglyphs egyptian hieroglyphs have multiple levels of meaning you know, they have their overt, obvious meaning and they, you know, but they have multiple levels. I think what's going on here um, in particular with the name of California is like an Egyptian hieroglyph. Yes, it comes from Calafia, but how does Calafia get her name? Because she's queen of the realm that is like a hot furnace, right? And we have the lore, this book, there's an interesting book in the 1930s, I think 1934, it's the year I could be wrong, maybe 33, uh, uh, called Death Valley Men by a guy named Bork Lee. And in that, he has one of those apocryphal tales, you can't prove it, of two prospectors in Death Valley, specifically the Panamint Mountains, uh, you know, uh, uh, who allegedly find near the peaks of the, the desert mountain range out there, they find these uh, stone arched openings that, they interpret as when death Valley was once full of water, that, that when it was a sea that these mountaintops actually would have been islands. And what these arched entries, when they went inside was where um, th there was a port, an ancient lost port. Um, well, of course they're never able to find those things and no one's found them since, but funny thing um at one point, the, 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 the um, U.S. Navy, okay, with their uh, China, is it China Lake or something? Anyway, um, they have a weapons range testing and, you know, aircraft testing and weapons range in Death Valley. And not long ago, they seized more land. And guess what? Those particular mountains in the Bork Lee book have been on U.S. Navy restricted property for a while now. So nobody can go search for these alleged, you know, lost ports of, you know, the lost uh, ancient civilization when there was indeed, you know, most people, Death Valley, when you go there, it, it, it's an ancient seabed. It's under sea level, right? It's... I, I believe it is, yeah. and but also you just look at it, and and it's been studied and, and presented. There was water in it at one time, and and that of course too comes from the idea of California being an island, you know, from the old Spanish legends of the explorer days. Um, this connects to the Esplandion novel, and uh, again, there's reason to suspect that the author, um, by you know family connection could have been made privy to what was discovered um 
in the portalons and other documents seized in the Fourth Crusade. Now, some people might say, well, what's so important about these documents and charts from the Fourth Crusade? It is suspected um, that um, that the uh, the archive, the Imperial Archive of Constantinople, um, possessed um, some of the surviving maps and records from the old Library of Alexandria. Now, when you look closer, um, what serves this possibility of what they learned in the Fourth Crusade about the New World even more is that you find out that we hear the story Library of Alexandria when it was destroyed. We lost all this stuff. Well, the fact is that there were two other ancient repositories, and there, for lack of a better way of describing it, there, there was much of the same information in all three of these repositories. When Alexandria was destroyed, we lost that one repository and whatever was in there that wasn't in the other two. However, uh, there, there's historians believe in, in when you research this, you find out that, you know, and one of these other repositories was the Imperial Archive in Constantinople, what became known as that. So uh, what that is suggesting is that during this fourth crusade, what was seized from there ends up in the hands of the Templars, the Teutonic Knights, and these other orders that um, that now interesting, the Templars didn't actually fight in the combat, but they provided ships and such. So they got their part of the booty as, as you will. Um, And so this information could very well, you know, date back to, what was in the library of Alexandria and uh, could very legitimately have been knowledge of what we called the new world, right. From ancient times. Um, And that's how the knowledge of what we call California came into the hands of the Spanish explorers. And in this particular author, Um, it, uh, it's really intriguing when you look closely at that, how, how much there it turns out that there is reason to um, there is reason to legitimate reason to speculate and hypothesize that there could have been um, you know this this realm this kingdom of Calafia so to speak whatever it really was here in California. Let me ask you this that you know so the so the Templars could have had some knowledge of California mm-hmm. before it's officially discovered. Oh yeah, and you talk a lot about how there's like there's there's this gap between Cabrillo comes up to California and they don't settle it for a good long while and right uh, what what could be going on there but but a lot of this I think you tie in that a lot of it has to do with gold too. Oh sure, sure yeah you're 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 talking about um, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with uh, Sesheri, the gentleman I've spoken of and the author of a book titled The Handprint of Atlas. Um, and, you know, he's done research and others have done research. Um, there's, there's enough reason to um, suspect that the powers that be, the people behind these explorations, um, understood the geomorphology of the earth to the degree that they could um, identify uh, where the, the very earth itself makes the gold. They could understand the terrain and, and the geomorphology, the architecture of the land itself to where they could look at a mountain range and, and tell you, ah, yeah, that's where we're going to find gold. And that could have been 
Seshari strongly believes this and proposes this. He thinks the California gold rush was a completely staged event that, uh, that um, they, they certainly knew there was gold there and, and knew where to find it. And it had to do with being able to read the terrain. And um, I do get into that in secret missions five. I think that was very much a part of the Cabrillo expedition. They were looking for certain land, natural landmarks. Okay. We're talking about natural features here. Um, and that they, that, you know, the, her, the hermeticists, the specifically alchemists, they would have understood this and, and this could have been some part of the knowledge that was seized in the fourth crusade. Um, it, it could have been knowledge of, it could have been more details about, well, in ancient times, the Finns, you know, went to, you know, what we would call North America or, or, or you know, uh, uh, King Solomon's miners, you know, went to what we would call South America. You know, they would, they would see this in there and the alchemists among them would look at this and they would understand, oh, okay, we need to go, we need to go across that ocean and we need to look for this type of terrain. And, and you know what, I understand why we need to look for this type of terrain, right? So that would be embedded it's like okay uh whoever juan cabrillo was really you know really truly recruited by commissioned by to do what he was because he was i do think he was doing he, he he was leading that spanish expedition but he had his deeper agenda and i think whoever if it was the templars if i'm right i think they educated him they briefed him and said Here's where you need to go. Here's where your guys need to go. Here's what they need to look for. This kind of landmark that or that specific landmark and such. And as I suggest in Secret Missions 5, <clears throat> it's possible that Templar explorers themselves could have made it to California before the, the Spanish exploration era. And they could have reported back through Templar channels and Cabrillo could have been briefed on I know there's some people that don't like the word could have or the phrase could have, but they, they need to go watch sports or something because they're way too deep into the conversation that they're not interested in the, to begin with. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 that's one of my peeves. Um, uh, Cabrillo could very well have been briefed in, you know, by his Templar cohorts or masters. That's, hey, this is what you, you need to go here because our prior explorer made it to this place. Go there. Look for this landmark. And, you know, just chart it, get it charted, you know, and it, it could very, very easily have been, you know, that circumstance that uh, because Cabrillo was being really weird around what we call the San Francisco Bay Area. I talk about this in Secret Missions 1 and I visited again in Secret Missions 5. If you recall, he broke he, he had his expedition. There were three ships. And if you remember, he found a way um, in so-called bad weather uh, to break off from the other two ships and his personal ship, the flagship, uh, was out of contact for long enough to sail into the mouth of what would become San, what would be called San Francisco Bay and to do a little secret recon or, or and, you know, uh, meet up with guys he had dropped off further south um, to look for something specific and then come out of there. And then, you know, uh, we're told that 
you know, he missed the mouth of the San Francisco Bay entirely, which if you've ever been up there, that's utterly ridiculous. You can look on a map and see how ridiculous it is. Okay. When I don't, I've lived in San Francisco, you know, worked there and everything. I've been there in July when the fog rolls in. Okay. It's a weird place like that. And I don't care how much fog there is. We are told that Juan Cabrillo is hugging the coast so tight that he's scaring the hell out of his crew. If you're hugging that coastline so tight, when you get to the mouth of what is the San Francisco Bay, that is big enough that you're going to just make that right turn east and continue following the coastline that's going to turn you back and into what's called the San Francisco Bay. And we're told that he missed it twice, but he found the mouth of a river. Right. I mean, yeah. you look you look on the map and it's it's ridiculous. So I don't believe it at all. I think Cabrillo secretly did find the San Francisco Bay. He was looking for it. I think he had reason to know it was there and did whatever he did looking around in there and with who, his who, most trusted who crew. Ofi- who officially discovered it? Was it Drake? Well, no, Drake is also suspected. Um, but it's it's generally proposed that Drake found um, not exactly the San Francisco Bay, but a place just north of it, I think. So the, and that's what's called Drake's Bay. They call it today Drake's Bay because there are people that say, well, th- this is what Drake really found. But that's another guy. I, I, I think it's very possible that Drake found the same opening and, and did his secret thing, because remember, my gosh, you got to read this book, The Secret Voyage of Sir Francis Drake. The, the, the author's name is Balf. I reference the hell out of him in my books, um, B-A-W-L-F. You find out in the, in the 1990s, some stuff was declassified. You find out that Drake um, was telling the truth in his lifetime. Drake was so pissed off at Queen Elizabeth because she would not allow it to be revealed that he and his men did not make a left turn at Oregon and go to Japan. No, no, no. They continued up, up the coast of what we call Oregon and Washington, up to the Yukon, up to what we call Alaska and into the, what's called, you know, the Anion Strait or whatever, and went on the, into the Arctic circle. Drake swore that he did that. And uh, uh, it, he, here's the interesting thing. He would be he was openly pissed off at Elizabeth for not letting him officially, you know, be able to claim that he would give maps of what he claimed uh, was his real expedition. And he'd autograph them for people. Now, what's interesting is the queen and her minions did not have him beheaded. Think about that. I mean, if, if you even looked at her wrong back then. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be beheaded, but uh, you know, what, what, what does that mean? What does that say? It suggests that, you know, she's like, okay, we're going to give him this one. We're going to let him run his mouth, but officially we're not going to, because why would it have been a secret? The Northwest passage back then, the Northwest passage would have been a huge strategic advantage. Right. So that's what they were all looking for. But um, if Drake indeed had that secret voyage and, and made it into the Arctic circle and stuff, why couldn't he have actually explored what we call the San Francisco Bay and that have remained classified too, you know, because he's looking for the right turn going east. Right. And again, if you're going up that California coast, when you get to the mouth of the, you know, the San Francisco Bay, it's big enough that you're going to, Oh, look, this looks like that right turn east that we need. Maybe this is the Northwest passage. Right. So I don't believe that Drake missed it either. I think it was the, um, 
the uh, strategic politics of the day and not just the strategic politics, but the um, mineral resources uh, demands and politics um, of the day that uh, made this so secretive. Uh, so you would suspect that the gold, they knew the gold was there. And when Fremont comes in and takes California. Yeah. Oh, boy. During the Mexican War. Yeah. That the whole Sutter's Fort thing, the discovery that that's kind of like a setup and that they knew that that gold was there. Because, you know, it, it was rather fortuitous. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was just to. And, and Sesheri is the guy that turned me onto this and lays it all out and talks about it in the handprint of Atlas. And, and I, I, you know, I find it convincing. Yeah, I, I think they knew that there was going to be gold there. And, and they, I, I think Fremont had something to do with, you know, confirming it. And boy, what a jerk that guy. <laughs> I mean, the, the crap that he and, and, and those guys did in stirring up, you know, untrue things and, and the murder of, you know, some of the natives, you know, that, that, that went on. Was there some symbolism you mentioned too with the Bear Flag Republic? Yeah, off the top of my head, because it's been last summer, I think, since I came out with this. Um, yeah, you, it might be, you just read the book recently. The specifics <laughs> might be more fresh in your mind. But um, here's an interesting thing that I didn't go as deep into as I wanted to. And I might pull that thread again in another book. But um, what's interesting is look at the California state flag. You've got it white with the red stripe at the bottom and black letters well these are colors associated with the templars as well as atlantis um i find that i find that interesting but yeah when you get into it's unfortunate that yeah the 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 american seizing of california um, has its murky parts that, um, wow, and Fremont was the, uh, there's no other way to put it. He was the SOB behind that. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you always learn something, no matter how much you think you know about something, when you dig in and do something like this, like when I was doing this book, I learned even more interesting detail about the history of California. And it's three non-native landlords that we know of being Spain, Mexico, and in the United States. And uh, each one, each one has their virtues. Each one has their sins. Um, Just a little trivia. Fremont, you know, he was, uh, he did pretty well out in the West, but he was a terrible civil war general. Just just and, and yeah. And, and, you know, he was, uh, uh, gosh. Yeah. We, uh, I think we'll, I think we'll call it there. But uh, before we go, Walter, um, you are going to be doing a um, presentation for us for Strange Realities. Yes. And I want to talk a little bit about what you're going to be talking about. And of course, this guys, this is going to be. We'll say it again, but this will be May twentieth. Um, I think it's going to be the Friday after this show comes out. So this will be uh, May 20th at 8 p.m. Let's just uh, kind of briefly just say what you're going to what you're going to talk about real quickly. I have um, my personal hypothesis, um, an alternative to the E.T. hypothesis to explain what could have been the the so-called Roswell incident. If it indeed happened, Um, I think it did. 
this grew out of research I was doing um, for one of my books, a book titled Shimmering Light, in which I was um, investigating and exploring uh, a story my dad had told me for um, over the course of four decades before he died. And uh, in pulling threads on that or investigating that, I learned a whole bunch of stuff that ended up in that book, Shimmering Light. And my presentation is going to specifically um, focus on presenting in detail my um, high, Roswell hypothesis, which is an alternative to the ET hypothesis. Okay. That sounds great. Awesome. Excellent. And uh, we're really happy to have you doing that with us. I think that's going to be an excellent presentation. And uh, these are interactive as well. So I think, Walter, you say you were going to talk for about like 90 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, people can ask you questions. Great. I'm looking forward to it. I, I enjoy talking about this. And uh, it's um, it's one of my books, honestly, I don't get asked too much about. So I, I do enjoy talking about any aspect of it. But uh, this book, um, Veil Destiny's Crossroads of the Axis of Circumstance, which, by the way, what is that on the front? What is that statue? Yeah. That is a uh, composite I put together representing Hecate. Oh, okay goes with the two torches and um yeah as she leads you through the underworld <laughs> and to the right is um a uh south american jungle to the left of course is yosemite yeah and for the patron segment, but i want to talk a little bit about the yosemite stuff too oh sure and the david politis stuff so guys Stay tuned for that. I, I do want to remind everyone that my books are not available at Amazon. I don't right. sell on Amazon, only at lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com, print on demand. And people can get them there. You're trying to uh, get out of the matrix of uh, Amazon. Well, Amazon is simply not good for the small press publisher. Uh, yeah. Lulu offers, for example, um, uh, a, a deal where you do your print-on-demand books, and they're also marketed in the Amazon marketplace. And quite frankly, Amazon does what you would expect them to do. They come in, and they find a way to route all your sales to their link, and they take the lion's share of the royalties. Lulu gets the next cut, and guess what you get? You get the smallest cut. Whereas if I just sell straight from my sales page, uh, my direct marketing, um, the royalty goes to where it should, and that's to the author and, and publisher. And, you know, Lulu gets its cut. So I, I just don't like I'm believe me, I'm a almost every other day shopper on Amazon, <laughs> but I will not um, I won't sell my own products because it's just not good for my particular business. Makes sense. Right. Well, this has been very fascinating, Walter. Where can people uh, find you? Uh- every Sunday I do a live stream Sunday afternoon, California time at the Walter Bosley channel on YouTube. And um, I don't just do the live stream there. I upload pre-recorded subjects and topics and readings from interesting books. Uh, You can also find me um, at Facebook if you want to contact me or or Instagram. I have a presence presence at each. So um, I'm out there. All right, guys. And as you heard, uh, May 20th, we are going to be doing uh, this next online Strange Realities event that's going to be with Walter. going to be talking about Shimmering Light. And uh, those tickets are going to be available uh, on Eventbrite. And also, you can become a $10 Conspiranormal Patreon. And Sergio can tell you where to find that. 
You can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Uh, if you join the mystic crew of conspiranormal at the $10 and up level, uh, you will be able to attend all of these strange reality streaming presentations for free. And at the $5 level, you'll be able to continue the conversation with us and Walter on the Patreon side. All right, guys. We're going to go over to Patreon, but uh, join us next time. We're going to have uh, Samantha Ingle and Aaron Gullius coming back. We're going to be talking about their new podcast called Great Lakes Lore, which I highly recommend, by the way. I've been listening to it. So until next week on Conspiracy Lore. please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.